0: Welcome to SICKcast, brought to you by SICK Research Institute, illuminating every path.
1: This episode is from a live webinar recording that originally aired on July nineteenth of this year. This episode is hosted by Dr. Jaspreet Ball, and the moderator is Manvinder Kaur. To get us started, Miminder Kaur will introduce our guests.
2: Vagujika Kalsa, Vagujiki Fate. thank you for joining today's webinar hosted by the Sikh Research Institute. Now I would like to introduce you to today's presenters. Harleen Gore is a community organizer, educator, and scholar. A sociology PhD candidate at UCLA, she studies the intersection of racialization, collective trauma, and nationalism through the story of the Sikh diaspora and our quest for belonging. Much of Harleen's inspiration, voice, and vision was cultivated during her year as a Bonderman Fellow, when she backpacked solo through 15 countries to better develop a global framework for liberation and sovereignty. Dr. Jaspreet Ball is a professor and program coordinator in the Child and Youth Care program at Humber College in Toronto. Ball serves on the board of directors of the Sick Feminist Research Institute and the National Board of the World Sikh Organization. She's also the editor of the Relational Child and Youth Care Practice Journal, as well as the co-host of the podcast, Hashtag AskCanadianSix. And lastly, today we have Benit Singh, is a playwright and filmmaker whose work is largely inspired and informed by Sikh and South Asian culture and history. Outside of theatre and film, his work is mostly based on history and education. He is a founding member of the South Asian Canadian Histories Association and a co-host of the Nameless Collective podcast, which follows histories of South Asians in British Columbia. Please welcome today's presenters. Um, Perhaps we could uh, throw it to Harleen um, or Beneath to start off our conversation on definitions and understandings of Bhakti and Shakti. Harleen? So, yeah, I
3: guess just to start, um, you know, when I sort of reflected back to my upbringing in camp and um, you know all the different, I think, lessons about, for me, I often learned about this through the framework of um, and I think we have a lot of different um, frameworks for the same concept in Sikhi, which I'm sure Beneath Singh can expand on as well. But I think to me, when I think about this idea of um, Shakti and Fagti, um, miripiri, um to me, it really comes down to this balance of, um, yeah, I think, you know, the way I was taught was sort of this balance between investment in the material world, but doing that for the sake of our own um, journey as six. And so um, for me, it's really ensuring that whatever investment we're making in the world that we're in is for the sake of a response to that, um, which is in line with good with. Um And that I think is where the funky comes in sort of developing this understanding and creating a higher consciousness. Um yeah, and I think I think a lot of um my understanding of Shakti is also um force for the sake of um attaining or experiencing Rahiguru. Um and Bhagdi is to sort of continuously remind ourselves that um that is our purpose and also the only true power is a So sort of this this kind of um balance that is continuously happening. Um, A text that I reference a lot in Sikhi Conversations is Pedagogy of the Oppressed by Freire, and he also has this concept called praxis, which I was reflecting on again. Um, And just to quote from him, he says, within the word, um, he calls it the true word, which I think is also interesting, we find two dimensions, reflection and action, in such radical interaction that if one is sacrificed, even in part, the other immediately suffers. So I sort of see the same kind of um, continuous interaction happening between the and
1: that would well. Yeah. Um, I wasn't planning on saying Fatih, but Harleen Kaur did. So now I feel like I have to do people's um, um It's a, a brilliant and succinct and eloquent answer from Harleen Kaur. Um For myself, um, I think like like ditto on a lot of the stuff that Benji said, but also um, and I, I can point back towards my upbringing as well. Um, A lot of going to camps uh, was a big part of it, Uh, but a big part of my upbringing was also Shastra Vidya, learning Gatka. Um, And my Ustad by Janjit Singh, uh, the late by Janjit Singh was uh, very um, insistent on the fact that Gatka Shastra Vidya was not exclusively a martial practice, but a spiritual practice. Um, And also insistent on that Uh, as we vichar or go through this world um, that we should carry ourselves with that kind of poise as a warrior. And that kind of being ingrained uh, into my psyche in uh, my early teens uh, really formed a lot of how I approached my community practice, my spiritual practice, um, my simran, my seva, uh, all of it. Um, And I think when we look towards um, like sick. Uh, like our ethos as as a Um I think the thing that makes it unique, I think it is kind of inherent in this idea uh, is inherent in this idea of Miri and kind of the first ceremony when we look towards um just kind of like how radical it was that Gu and Sai Maharaj took uh, a, took a symbol of war. Um, and often, like when we when we call back to it, um, it's like a common rhetorical device from like prachariks and katha It'll be like, ik jamala, karpaan. Um, but the, the thing that's so rad about Guru Hargo and Sai Maharaj is that it wasn't hath hat It was karpaan in both hands. Mm. Um, so our bhakti is inherently combative. And our, uh, and our activism, our warrior spirit is inherently devotional. And I think that's mm. something that um, when we look at a lot of these words, um, like niripiri, uh, santupahi, Um there's no, like we hyphenate them in our in our use of the language often, but uh, even when we're when we're referring to them colloquially, we don't say and we don't say mm. Um because like it's it's this one idea made of two parts. Um, so yeah, echoing a lot of what Helene said, but um, for me it always comes down to. The fact that the two qualities are um, belong to and inherent to one another.
0: That's so beautiful. Thank you. And let's talk about these words and these terms a little bit. So, we titled this webinar Shakti Pakti. And I know some of those synonyms came out while you all were talking. Um, so, like we talked about Miri Piri, uh, Dig, Dig, Raj, Jog. What is the significance to these different terms? Um, what do they evoke in you? Where do you hear which one's used? And do you see them as synonyms? And Harleen Gore, we'll start with you.
3: I think beyond what I already said, I'm, I'm thinking about the the um, framework of DEG, DEG now. I think something that we maybe didn't talk about as much is also the importance of SEVA um, in manifesting these concepts in ourselves, right? So um, I think dig most often gets associated with the SEVA. But I, again, I think as I was reflecting through these, it's um, you know, as Bonita Singh so beautifully shared, it's how much of it, is, uh, of it is our sort of Western understanding, recreating a binary between these two things, when I don't think that's what glucia have intended, right? I mean, so much of Bonnie is telling us that we shouldn't live in duality. So how is it possible that this concept so innate to Sikhi and our practice of it could be a duality, right? It just, it doesn't click logically for me. So, um, yeah, so even, for example, I, to answer your question more directly, I think they are sort of synonyms or different concepts that have different contexts to them, but I think they're sort of describing a similar practice or embodiment um, from different contexts. And I think that looking at Daeg, they we need to figure out how do we see Seva, how do we see the practice of Seva in both? Um, so they um, longer Seva as Seva, right, but also the practice of Daeg as Seva and what is our, when we're engaging in practice of dig or chakti or all of those things, maybe how are we um doing that as a practice of seva so that the ego doesn't get in the way in terms of how we're acting?
1: Yeah, um in terms of like the specific terminology, uh I think it specific terms and like are evocative of like certain like, like certain applications. So uh like when I think big, big for me it's very much um community type of outlook yeah. it's like i don't like when i think about my own spiritual practice it's not a it's not big big like you it, for yourself you think more long, or i think more long lines of of miripedi um and they're kind of uh or sansapahi i think that's kind of like the the descendant of that um where it becomes very personal where the dig dig uh becomes very much about um community um an joke for me often has like the connotation of like politics. um mm. so I think they, they 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 are synonymous to an extent, but uh, the specificity i think is also very um it's very nuanced in kind of our our use of it. but they I feel like they are all evocative of the same kind of uh, idea and howcour used this uh, concept of duality and oneness like re- really poignantly and I, and I agree very much that. Um, I think it is all evocative of that same concept, but, um, and then in terminology, I think the nuance of it is someone who's probably a better Punjabi speaker than me would would be more uh, in tune with it, but that that's where my mind goes. I
0: think I have, uh, we all have our associations uh, and our histories with those terms and like miripiri de malik. when I think about Guru Hargobind Maharaj, it always hits me in a really different way and I'm really moved by that and I think You touched on this a little bit, that they are, both of you talked about this, that they're not things that we see as binary or as mutually exclusive in Sikhi. So what are some places where you have, where do you get evidence for the fact that they're not mutually exclusive, um, that they're not either or, you have to pick a team um, or that you, you know, you, you do your bhakti between nine to five and then from five to seven, you do your shakti and then you go back. Uh, what are examples, and maybe we'll go the other way this time, we'll start with Beneet Singh. Um, what are some examples from Sakhi where you've seen the overlap or the concept?
1: So there's there's a really specific Sakhi that for me comes to mind. I don't want to get too pracharki uh, on you, but uh, just very really quickly. Um, and it, it's interesting. Yeah, uh, but the the reason that it, it comes to my mind is, is because um, it's not. it has nothing to do with battle. Um, But it was this uh, incredible story from Giani Pindarpal Singh, where it was a, a Sikh during the time of Guru Arjan Dev Ji, um, and he used to be uh, a Brahman pundit, uh, I believe, off, and was like guilty of like tons of caste discrimination. Came to Guru's Darbar, changed his life, and he's like, I can't believe I've been doing this my whole life. Devoted himself to Guru Arjan Dev Ji Maharaj's life. I might have the Guru side wrong. I apologize. And then he started doing seva in the langar, uh, which was radical for him. Now doing seva of people of all stripes and then but the other langas never used to see him eat the and then one day i think the head langari saw that uh, after the, the sangat had gone home and everything was done he used to go around and he used to pick up the rice and, and the and the roti and dal that was on the ground and he used to eat that and he used to like curse at himself and swear at himself um for the life that he had led up to that point and then the Sikh told Guru Devi Maharaj, Maharaj called him and said that, well, like, like this is not what Langar is, that your place in Langar is alongside everybody else. And so that's where I would like you to eat. And then it continued. And even though Maharaj had given him that instruction, he continued to not feel confident enough or brave enough or belonging enough uh, to sit with the rest of the Sangha. And so the Seva saw him again uh, continuing with the same, like swearing at himself, cursing himself. And uh, what happened is when they took him back to Maraj, then Maraj gave, gave him the the understanding that it was, that they said that there's Nimrata, and then there's hinta, and the Nimrata being humility and hinta is like considering yourself less than everybody else. And they said, when you deny yourself, um, like being on the plane of everybody else, when you go to the place of hinta, that you're denying the existence of the divine within yourself. And Guru Arjan Devi Maharaj said that you're my Sikh and I reside within you. If you're not feeding yourself prashadda, that means you're denying me prashadda. And the reason, uh, which I thought was incredible and beautiful and powerful. And um, for me, this is the application of bhakti and shakti. This is the application of, um, of uh, santa um I remember I did this exercise. Once we were talking about the same concept, because I love this concept, uh, with a couple of SSAs here. And what we did is we made uh, two columns of like, what are the qualities of a saint and what are the qualities of a soldier. And after we did that on a whiteboard, we erased the titles and we swapped them. Um, mm. Because our bhagti is so combative. It's like we go to battle with every day. That's what a warrior does. And a saint is the person who loses the battle every single day and gets up the next day to fight again. Um, and that's for me like the two belong to each other, and and that's I feel like it's that that Sakhi of that Gorsekh often comes to mind is because when we abandon um, this like idea of self and belonging as an individual as a part of this month, um, we usually think of it or we can think of it as this kind of like no I'm doing what the guru is asking of me I'm being low I'm following the teachings of Asadhi. But, but um really it's like there's um the it, it's it's more than just your actions themselves it's the it's the consciousness behind the actions as well
0: it's beautiful thank you helen same question where do you see examples of this in saki yeah um
3: i think just briefly cuz we've already been referencing um Had side but i think for me um the soft key that um, I always loved as a kid, but I think now as I've learned more about um, prison abolition really speaks to me as Bundy Chord Devas. So, um, you know, comments mm-hmm. on so I won't go on too long, but I think just, even if we look at this example, again, as Baneet Singh said, not like a battle, like a, a, like a battle on the field example. But um, again, this was, this was a case in which Budu Saib was doing bought with the Hindu Rajas inside there was the bot that is happening by the Sangat outside so long as Guru Saib and these, you know, princes were still in prison. And Budu Saib was able to use, you know, sort of what we maybe term as like worldly power, the power of negotiation to improve the prison conditions so long as they were stuck there, um, and also negotiate for their release, right? And did that through um I, I'm intentionally sort of using more like current modern day organizing strategies so we can see the connections here, but like what we would now say like as collective action, right? Like Samp-Niamir came and negotiated with Wazir Khan to like use his power, right? So it was sort of this like collaborative effort across the Sangath and Guru side to really um, make sure that these people got free and until they got free that their conditions were at least on a, as human of a level as you can have in prison, right? And so I think But I think what's really important there is as they were doing that, there was continuous thought. There was continuous um, recitation of Gurbani, and that's what was grounding them in their action. Um, So I think even from Guru Hargobhan Sahib, who really grounded us in Shasta Vidya, there are so many other beautiful examples of that um, that are demonstrating that in different ways, too.
0: That's so beautiful. And the gurus were revolutionary in their thinking and what they did years ago. um, I always find it interesting when like new language comes up um that we can use to describe that and that is the first time I've heard that Saki talked about a reference as prison abolition and I my brain's like it's going places I like it Uh, not that prison abolition is a new concept there are years of hard work that black activists have and other people have put into it's just newer in our everyday vocabulary right now um, yeah, so there, um, and I like, there's so many really great examples where I think about how, uh, when the gurus built cities, um, when they designed their bar sahib, the way a kaltak is in front of Ramanda sahib, the way at the Hall is designed, the way we put Shastra in front of our guru, all of these things that just, just drive home that it's not, uh, one and then the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think sometimes outside of my sex fears, I really do get, um, Well, no, only people who are angry are uh, turned to arms or, um, you know, if you were really able to change your perspective and accept the world, then you wouldn't um, feel this way and you wouldn't have shastar, and you wouldn't have. And and I like that we can advocate for um, abolition of systems like prisons and at the same time hold our resolve in being people who are armed and not see that as as two ideas that are conflicting. Um, So, Benisa, kind of to this list that you were talking about, the one that you made, sometimes we look at qualities of being a a as being masculine and feminine, and the obvious ones being that the Bhakti side have a little bit more feminine qualities and the Shakti side tends to have masculine qualities. Um, And at the same time we're having conversations about gender as not being binary. We're talking about these things as not being um, a dichotomy. What are your ideas of like where gender falls into each? Do you assign a gender to either side? And what does that uh, like, where do those ideas come from?
1: As a cis hetero thing, I think I have the best opinions on this. Um, I'm sure I do. uh uh I have well, I have the most important opinions, I should say, about this. Uh, uh, that's a joke in case anyone's going to like have my uh, uh, head on a platter for that. Um it's interesting. Um and I've uh I was having a conversation with a friend of mine uh who I think is an incredible sick in the way he lives his life. Uh, and he's also a counselor. And we kind of grew up similarly. We're like we're we're undersized guys. So like um we got picked on when we were uh, like uh, either like overtly or covertly when you're growing up um you hear the like the idiomatic expressions of like banda Barnidia a lot that kind of stuff growing up, and we talked we we like talked about this a lot um where uh sorry there was a beep in the back i hope it wasn't too alarming but we talked about this a lot where we're mobilized like we're like we're trying to like ingrain uh like patriarchal kind of mindsets in our sings because it's like well baba deep Singh, ah like that's like that's like the the extent of our analysis and it's really it's really kind of sad um i mean how much like is does gurbani point towards Does Guru-Gobhan singh ji maharaj my my favorite thing my favorite thing uh from the the colonial from the colonial um Hello. from the colonial scholar I'm sorry, my, the tech in my house is going nuts. My phone just went off. Um, uh, but the Ernest Trump, the German dude who went to India and tried to tell everyone what sick he was, um, he said one thing that I love, and I quote, uh, because I think he meant it in a completely different way, and uh, I took it in a different way. He said the first nine gurus talked about pretty much the same thing, but the 10th guru, he was obsessed with this goddess, and I think he was just completely obsessed because, I mean, Guru was thinking Maharaj was like I would say like in the most positive of connotations like the divine feminine energy of of battle was Chanti and I think that's incredible and how uh, how much do we understate that um when we're when we're teaching Sikhi it's is one of the most horrific things I mean the qualities of bhakti and shakti are given to us usually in the form of the feminine in the forms of Sohagan, like often turned a type of bhakti and then on the battlefield in the forms of Chendi. and it's like and we're trying to apply these kind of like bravado like punjabi jatt earlier much into a tappi and like you know little Museara and like conflate that to our like our warrior ethos as a panth. and i think that's like it's one of the most horrific things and we i'm probably i'm definitely guilty of it myself um and I've like, I'm sure it's been ingrained throughout history. Uh, but like at the root of it, I like it's, it's wild to me that we've managed to do this.
0: Same thing. So do you assign a gender to, to either concept? And where do those ideas come from?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I think pretty similar to, um... okay, might be better now. Um, I think, pretty similar to what Faneet Singh already said, um, you know, definitely sort of an amalgamation of U.S. and W gender norms. Um, but I think something that um, it's interesting, I'm, I'm thinking about your response a lot because um, there's this lecture or workshop that Faisal Singh did um, at Toronto sings camp. I don't know how many years back, and my brother just pointed me to it. Um, and he actually, the whole workshop is about um, addressing gom specifically for and I'll you know give the caveat that he it's very much um towards like this cut sings but he actually uses Devad as an example of you know as sings we have create as a you know I think as a funk like we have created this image of both Waheguru and Guru Sahib being um like a sort of in either Punjabi or western context like a man right and so this and very like masculine ideas and so, I would assume for men, what that does is that creates a type of power dynamic where you see yourself as closer to that um end goal, right? And sort of prevents you from seeing what growth needs to happen. And so um Sitval Singh sort of shares like, you know, connecting through Waihru, um connecting to Waigru through, through Chandidevad and the recitation of that as a way to connect with um, you know, the feminine divine. Um, and then for me, speaking as um, you know. As this woman and a god, I think on the flip side of that, the conversations I've had and why, um, Subbal Singh's lecture was so interesting to me is because I've had a lot of conversations in god-only spaces where it's this idea of being, feeling prevented from building a relationship with Guru Sai because of these gendered constructs that we bought into as six. Um, and because we, um, yeah, it's sort of, if, if you're placing that same sort of male construct, it is preventing a relationship or creating a dissonance with Guru Saib and bai guru as well. So I think for me that's something to continue working through. Um, and one thing that I'm I'm thinking about is, you know, obviously we're still using these ideas of like feminine and masculine energy, even when trying not to buy into gender. Um, so is, is there a way to like have this conversation um, fully removed from like those gendered constructs, but also recognizing that there's sort of this History of talking about it as like feminine and masculine energy, so that's something that I definitely am still like working through and processing through, um, and I think it's yeah, it's just an ongoing process of really connecting with Guru Saib and Gurbani and being able to have more like decolonial um, understandings of Gurbani and all of that. Well, um, also, Denise, I don't know if you want to um, maybe I sounds like we're already heading in the direction of our next segment, which is more so thinking about how these um sort of stereotypes or um I don't know what to call them but yeah I guess like these constructs have sort of manifested in the diaspora um, I'm thinking about that through our work can you hear me now
0: I can yes. hear okay perfect <laughs> but I like that <laughs> if you want to continue with that sounds great <laughs> um yeah so you've both pursued Great. through history art and academia the complicated process of sick identity formation in the diaspora so uh I'm gonna put you a little bit on the spot because you're both subject matter experts and there's a reason you were brought here and you've done really cool um and innovative things in arts and academia and looked at history in a uh, through a lens that we haven't had a chance to see before I actually think a, a way that our generation has the luxury of Telling our own story, the privilege of telling our own story in a way that has very much been done for us in the past. So can you share just a few highlights of the work that you have done? And we'll start with beneath.
1: I, I mean, I think what underscores a lot of um, a lot of my work is that is that same sake. I think about it a lot, is um like understanding this importance of like as a marginalized or, or made like a marginalized community in the spaces that we live. Um, is centralizing our stories is so important and claiming that space is important with confidence is important and the humble everyday stories of our of our homes are important um, and that drives a lot of the work I do and then still kind of maintaining that uh, understanding of, of a common understanding of humility um, through a Gurmat lens and like making sure that that is also weaved into it um, so like that's kind of that's kind of where my work lives um, and uh so um for me the thing that that thing that uh, kind of drives a lot of my work is uh is that through 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 my film and theater work, it's an opportunity for me to engage with um the stories of uh our community and elders uh in a way that uh usually allows me to put my political spin on it uh, to a certain extent um and then, but also, like, um, just honors the fact, uh, just honors their very existence, which I think, um, which, like, to come from a migrant community, um, and to live through, through, like, the, the multiculturalism politics of the 1970s, um, often like pitted, uh, like, this wider community against you, and if you, you didn't understand um, that, or, or if if the you didn't carry those qualities of um, of bhakti and shakti of confidence and humility, um, then we wouldn't have had like the rad community organizing that we had um, throughout the last decades. Uh, we wouldn't be having conversations in our circles um, about prison abolition and about uh, abolishing or defunding the police in our circles if if those traditions weren't coming over the last decades. Um, and so yeah it's 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 a it's a it's an opportunity for me to uh, take things like uh and also um for me is like is to get is to bring the community together in a space where it's okay to talk about mm-hmm. what you've experienced um, and it's valid just because you experienced it uh, I think oftentimes um, that's not afforded uh to Large uh, demographic, like large segments of our month, um in most of the spaces that we do. Uh, and one of the shows that I wrote, a Vancouver Goldasta, which was about um, a Sikh Punjabi family in Vancouver living through um, the experience of Operation Blue Star over the first ten days of June. Every show was followed by a talkback, so that the community would have a chance to just share their stories. And it wasn't exclusively a Punjabi Sikh audience; it was probably like a 30% Punjabi Sikh audience turnout, but um how much space the community felt that they could claim because of the story that they just watched was quite amazing um and also uh the amount of uh aunties that i saw stand up and share their stories Mm -hmm. um and say for the first time that i've never spoken and like their husbands are sitting there like looking at them like hey like what and it's like like this is exactly what we need it's like we need spaces where like people feel emboldened to um, to speak their experience and their truth uh, because for too long they've been marginalized. So it's just like a place for amplification, really. Uh, yeah. I just went on like a random long rant. So I'll just, no, I'll just awesome. weirdly tie it off there.
0: OK, Arlene Gore. Yeah. So what are some of the places um, in your work and some examples of the stuff that you've done that have brought you to this point?
3: Yeah, um, I think Benitzing does really beautiful sort of like uncovering work um, through through arts and things like that. And I think I would characterize what I do more as um, untangling. So Mm -hmm. I sort of, um, my dissertation that I'm working on right now really studies um, what I kind of see as, what I do see, working on that, what I do see as the legacies of colonization um, as we embody them as six in the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. Um, and some of the ways that I think we see this, and I know we'll get into this later as it relates to Bugsy and Chucky, but specifically our investment in the nation state over sort of six structures of sovereignty. Um, and I think another important point to that, which makes brought up, is this ongoing legacy of collective trauma that we have as a community that is very unaddressed, very much in terms of obviously gender-based violence and things like that. And I also think um, what I focus on more so is race. So specifically... Racialized trauma and how that really um and specifically how six were racialized by the British, um, which then allowed six to sort of be used in support of the nation state instead of resistance, which I think was more so our history was one of resistance rather than buying into the state. Um, and I think for me, I mean, just to take it on a more personal narrative, because I think a lot of times um I want to be candid about this because I think academia is something I never saw myself going into growing up. Um, I didn't even really think about a PhD actually until I finished undergrad, um, and so just to sort of be candid about like what that process was for me, because there aren't a lot of sticks who go down this route. Um, I think, yeah, it was just things in my life that started to come up and sort of untangle or unravel the narratives I'd been told. So I grew up in Wisconsin um, in the Oak Creek Sangath, and so obviously for me the the 2012 shooting at the Gurudwara was a really big um, awakening point of, um, yeah, maybe maybe this thing I've been told that if I, you know, explain my identity the right way and if I'm like friendly enough to people and things like that, they'll love us enough for us to belong. Like I think that was a really big waking up point of like mm, maybe this is not really the mm-hmm. approach to being six in the diaspora. Um, and I think just the timing of that for me, that was my that happened my first year of undergrad. And then um, within a few months was also the killing of Trayvon Martin by um, George Zimmerman, as well as George Zimmerman's acquittal. And so for me, I think it was really this whole unraveling of buying into the US as our protector. um, That of course, as immigrants, like we've had to buy into because why would you go somewhere if you don't think it's better than where you're coming from? And so, and then, you know, the fellowship that was mentioned in my bio as well, allowing me to really make global connections of This is not just something um, that Sikhs have gone through. um, And it's also, at the same time, Sikhs have also participated in making it worse for other communities, um, especially through what I'm writing on right now is really our imperial legacies, the way that Sikhs were shipped off to other nations to help the British steal that land from the indigenous people, right? So I think sort of this long journey of figuring out, I think we're really good to some extent of knowing our selective history and our Sikh history but as a community, we really don't understand the histories of the lands that we um, came to, the lands that we now live on, um, the places that we have helped sort of take over. I think that sort of just building a more diasporic understanding of what is our Sikh legacy and how do we come to terms with that and reckon with that today. And let's keep going with
0: that. So I think that this our bhakti and our shakti and our ability to, knit those into who we are and into our practice is our biggest strength and then sometimes it is exploited by colonizers by militarized states uh, to do their own work and this is always one of those issues and i applaud that you're um, diving in and doing the work of untangling this because this is when it comes to um the use or misuse of bhakti and shakti i always just end up in a place where it's agreed to disagree Uh, because I see a celebration of um, veterans and I -hmm. I can see both sides of that. And I see, um, you know, six civil liberties organizations fighting for the right to wear this thought and serve in the U.S. military. And I can understand why some people would celebrate that. Um, We have a very strong heritage. And when we come and we brought all of that into the diaspora with us, Um, what does living that bhakti shakti look like in the diaspora so in terms of the work you're doing looking uh doing the deep dive into um military service police service um the people that resist these ideas the people that lean into these ideas both sides inform their opinions with barney and history so what is how are you looking at that To me, still, yeah. To you,
3: you're (laughs)
0: turning to your subject matter expertise.
3: Sounds good. So, um, yeah, so I'll I'll focus on um, the military component just because I think that's sort of where I already started going. Um, For for me and my understanding, I think the biggest struggle that I see in terms of the way that Sikh identity gets tied into the military narrative today is that there isn't a distinction between um, yeah, sort of sick um, Guru, Guru Sahib's concept of niri piri and how that got warped or transformed through British colonization. And I think that's intentional. That's not to say we're, mm-hmm. um, we're, you know, we're doing that to sort of dishonor our history or anything like that. I think that that is, a, you know, that was the whole point of colonization was to tell our story for us as Beneath Singh said. So, you know, um, just, uh, I guess, a quick example, like as I'm as I'm looking back through these documents of the British first coming to Bindab, um, them first sort of taking over what was, you know, the Northwest province um, at that time, what they termed it. There are so many documents of them trying to understand. And I think even like a more colloquial example is McAuliffe um, and like his whole research. There were so many efforts for the British to um, really discern and define Sikh identity for themselves. Um, and we have to really question ourselves and ask like, why have we given them so much credit of saying like, oh, this is because they were interested in secure, they thought it was cool, they wanted to be our friends. No, it was because they needed to conquer the land for them to have power. And the only way for them to do that was to understand how we operated and translate it into their own frameworks. And so looking at these old documents of the British deciding this type of shasta is legal for this person. This kind of person can make this shasta. they like totally like illogical frameworks that don't make any sense. And that's sort of the way that they started to deconstruct our own sense of identity was putting it in their legal frameworks. And we, we see like the legacies of that today in so many ways. But I think that's the most dangerous thing to me is that the British were successfully able to take our, um, our idea of resistance and make us feel that fighting for a military, fighting for a state um, imperial effort was the same thing as median and Fidi. And I will be the first to admit that I don't know nearly enough Sikh history. But again, from my understanding, that was never Guru Sahib's intention. This is why throughout Sikh history, Guru Sahib made their own institutions. We created new Gurmat institutions because nothing in the world was um, doing that for us. And so for us to now look at you know, Guru Hargoban Sahib's legacy, Guru Sahib's legacy and say that is the same as serving for a nation state, which, um, their intentions are simply not the same, right? The nation state's military is to defend the people within the nation, um, and do that at whatever cost necessary. Whereas Bhakti Shakti, um, Guru Sahib's legacy of Miripiri is to embody God, is to do seva. Um, and to me, there's really no element of, um, Doing Seva through military service um, as we see it today. So I think I think that's the biggest struggle that is really going to take a long time um, to deconstruct. Um, and I think I think the biggest reason is because as six, we're both under and miseducated on these legacies, um, as well as like the legacies of the institutions we're committing to. So I think just to tie it more to today, this whole conversation about police abolition, um, which in the mainstream is more being talked about about defunding the police. Um, I think this is, you know, as six, we just don't, tying back to my earlier point of, we don't just understand the legacies of the countries that we're belonging to. So I think even, yeah, like I didn't learn until much later in life that the police in the U S were originally, the original police in the U S were slave patrols who were in charge of bringing, um, enslaved Africans back to the plantation after they had escaped. And so when you have that legacy of an institution, what protection can it really provide to all people? So I think as six, like our, we really need to bring it upon ourselves to reeducate ourselves and unlearn these things. Um, and I'm always reminded of this quote by Asada Shakur, and she said, um, "No one is going to give you the education you need to overthrow them. Nobody is going to teach you your true history, teach you your true heroes if they know that knowledge will help set you free." Um, and I think that's beneath. That's why your work is so important too. Um, and I think as six, the beauty is like we actually do have the knowledge that will set us free. It's Gudbani, right? It's it's um, Guru Saib's legacy. So, I think figuring out how do we uncover those narratives like you're doing and sort of, yeah, bring them back to their more authentic history, um, which I'm sure you can talk about more. Yeah,
1: you're an absolute gangster. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, the work that you're doing, I think, is so important. Um, and, uh, and like, and just I, I was nodding throughout the whole thing. Um, but there is this, uh, weird, uh, conflation and I do I do think it's really weird um, and it's ingrained because of colonization about like military service and like and, Seva and like uh, working uh, and like working for uh, a imperial power and like that's all the same um, I mean I've like military historians will sometimes like sick military historians will sometimes say like um, I can't see a difference between Uh, the shaheeds of their language, the shaheeds of uh, the armies in the world wars um, and the shaheeds of Guru Hargobind Sahib's Akal Sarna. And like I have like a visceral reaction to that um, Mm -hmm. because how we ended up in both positions is very different. Uh, I'm not going to pretend like the that that like all of Sikh military history, even like Sikh Raj time, even uh, Sikh missile time, um, agrees with my politics. I can't do that. Um, but like in terms of the value system that informs my politics or like that informed theirs, uh, I can look towards that. Um, kind of like, kind of like what you were saying. Um, well, I think one thing that gets overlooked a lot is, uh, there's, uh, so Anita Anand, uh, who wrote, um, The Patient Assassin, um, and, uh, Shahid Udom Singh biography, she writes in there about, um, how, uh, i don't know if it was O'Dwyer or dyer but during uh, the early uh, 20th century is that the way that they would um get um they would get people to um sign up for the army was pitting them against one another based on their uh, religious, cultural, socioeconomic caste identities. Uh, They would go to Punjab and be like, you know, the Marathas have given us 5,000, but you're supposed to be the warriors of Guru Gobind Singh. And so if you're the warriors of Guru Gobind Singh, the Marathas give us 5,000, and uh, and all of Amritsar, we've gotten 2,500 employees. Uh, What does that say about you? Mm -hmm. And so like this horrible kind of mobilizing of, of... uh, or weaponizing of identity and uh, and like I guess militaristic or martial ethos um, was is like really horrific and it's become really ingrained over the or like over over the last hundred few hundred years and I and I I always turn to often because uh, I'm obsessed with it is uh, the early West Coast uh, gather history uh, mm-hmm. which was uh, fiercely anti-military um, a lot of the activism was born. Out of the fact that a lot of these migrants were uh, former uh, b- former British servants, um,
2: right.
1: for want of a better word, but uh, that they they served in military and police, and they lived in places like Shanghai and Hong Kong, and they um, they they reaped privileges of uh, that were afforded to them through col- uh, through uh, colonization. But um, the thing that woke them up to it was also <laughs> colonization. And um, and like you see that in Vancouver in a big way when like 1910 there's a bonfire in the streets of Vancouver uh, uh, where uh, Jethadar Bog Singh, the president of the Kalsa Society, leads burning of medals and uniforms and certificates and and, and honors from the military. Uh, there's directives issued from the Kalsa Doon Society, Vancouver, that uh, those who associate with the society can't wear their military uniforms in public anymore. Um, or they won 't be associated with the gordora. Uh, we see it um, also when uh, king what 's his name came to Vancouver, and then the the city asked the the six of the gordora that used to serve in the military to come in their military regalia and and stand on stage and greet the King of England um, again, trying to like again mobilize the identity and the relationship to the advantage of white Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like, like, where is our agency in those conversations and where, where are our ethos being exploited? Like kind of like where the question leads to oppress other communities and to marginalize other groups. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something that I think we haven't interrogated enough. And we, and like, even when we begin to interrogate it, it's a, it's an easy kind of out to just go World War One, World War Two. You end up on the right side of history in a broad stroke it's like okay sure you're not a nazi okay good starting point but um uh but it's like where do you go from there right it's like it's like it's like not being a nazi i mean in today's it's it's like i mean in the unfortunate state of today's world is not the worst place to start but i mean it's it's not i mean it's not where our gurus i feel would want us starting from it's like hey you want it's like i mean when i think I was like that's like that's a high ideal of meditation of devotional practice Uh, to call yourself a Sikh and meditate on Akaal name I would hate to think that we can start conflating that with hey don't be a Nazi like that's that's a pretty that's a pretty low bar to set
3: I was just gonna say really quickly I think one way to do that because I think sometimes it's like thinking about like how do we yeah just like think about like how do we actually do that and how, how do we actually like discern um what is more like worldly frameworks versus gurmu um and i think for me like even just like sort of alarm bells went off in my head when you said like what if we think about like literally the the common term for those roles was civil service right so even this idea of like at that point you who are you serving now instead of guru sai right like the six our intention should always be to serve to serve Guru Saib, to do seva of um, the embodiment of a Kalburuk, right? So if if we're now like a civil servant, then like where are our intentions lying? And I think even, I mean, in my own reflection, I've been thinking about like, yeah, how do we actually like do that? How do we engage with that reflection process? And I've been thinking about Sid Gosht a lot lately. Um, and funny enough, we actually got it as our hukam at home this morning um, before this. So yeah, I think just thinking of, again, like looking to Guru Sahib and thinking about like, what can we learn from Guru Saiv's journey through like the world and like existing worldly structures and how they were able to assert Gurumath and like question Manmat in just like a day-to-day basis and I think at the end of the day like obviously we're not going to know until we get there but I mean the Sakhi just going back to the Sakhi you shared at the beginning that was so beautiful of in every instance, just asking ourselves, like, is this bringing us closer to embodying God? Is this getting me closer to both seeing Rab in myself, but also in every other person, right? And so if if there's anything that we're embodying that feels like it's separating ourselves from that, is, is that truly our best practice of Gurmath?
0: Thank you so much for that. Um, I, I'm going to, we've got one more question before we open it up to, uh, I, I can see that there are folks that are reacting. Um, it's getting people thinking and there's some There's some questions, so please drop your questions in the Q&A and we'll, we'll take questions there. Um, the last big question I have for the presenters, and it is a big one and it is a relevant one, is Um, about the misappropriation of the terms Shakti and Bhakti. So we are living in a time where we've already talked about, um, you know, how we do lean on narratives of Shakti um, to, to justify doing or not doing things in the diaspora. One of the things that I've Found really alarming, and I think uh, finally we're starting to have conversations about is misappropriations of bhagdi and how they protect people in our sangat. Um, so we do have a lot of times where um, we will protect people who are perpetrators of sexual violence, people who hurt children, people who hurt sangat, and a lot of protection is afforded to them because of this idea that they have somehow some uh, divine connection or Look at how much bugsy they have, and they can't be bad if they do those things. So the really big question of how can these terms be misappropriated to protect those, and how do we have these conversations that are not straightforward? And um, I think since Helene, you started with the last one, we'll go to Benit and then we'll give you we'll go over to you.
1: I'm so glad that you put this in here because I think um, this is such a like incredibly important thing to be talking about. Um, and people love to say in this day and age, but uh, we've needed this for decades um in a big way because of the fact that I mean we've been doing throughout uh, uh i mean turtle island we've been doing ca- day, like overnight camps for six for thirty years, and based off little other than goodwill of the month right like the, you just trust it because it's the six base um and then but there are so many um so many accounts of of sexual violence. Um, or there's like uh there's like this assured safety because of like um kind of like a conserve like performatively conservative ideals like in the in the forefront of like oh we keep the gender separate so it'll be fine um that kind of stuff like it enables us to to just like it's enabled us to turn a blind eye to it I mean and this I think it's so horrific and counterintuitive to um, go, to Gurmat ideals I mean be, that like, like Bhakti is a hall pass to do whatever you want to the people around you and harm harm the people around you uh, and and be a criminal like I, I don't understand it um, I mean if we look at like like Sevillela we re, we read them every morning morning or perhaps some of us do um, and like uh, people love the line like but like the first line, of that body is Like why like what is the point if you're full of pakhand to sit there with your eyes closed and literally, literally do performative bhakti, right? Like like our language might be like contemporary, but it's the exact same comment Gurgovin Singh Jimara is talking about. Um and like Pakhand is this is how much content of Pakhand that Gurgobin Singh Maharaj is doing. And it's like now leave Bokarna behind, and now let's go to violence and harm, and like like how much further along there are we, uh, like on that, uh, like how much gravitas of, of, of like how of horrificness does that hold? Um, so I mean like we we enable it, and I think we enable it through our institutions. Like we, um, and I say that this is somebody who's grown up, um, and I love and value how much traditional vidya that I've been able to access um, in terms of like sampradayak, like learning styles. And I think that is a huge part of my spiritual outlook. Um, and I wouldn't change that for the world, uh, the information that I got or the relationship that I had with my ostads. But I say that from a position of incredible privilege that I, I usually didn't have to worry about um, my body uh, being being... Uh, being at risk in the spaces that I was in um, by virtue of like the environments that I grew up and learning. Because I mean, uh, I think something we don't talk about enough is young Singhs being targeted often by um, predatory uh, grantees and uh, like Gyanis and that kind of thing or so-called Gyanis. Um, and I think that we need like our, our systems need to face their reckoning. When we let these people um, be protected by committees, and when those committees are uncles, and when those uncles are um, the same ones who've been protecting each other from this kind of uh, this kind of um, persecution or accountability, um, like where 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 are we ever going to get? And um, I like I, I do have an affinity towards the Gordara committee because of what it means. Uh, or the, pla- the place that it held and when we started like the formation of like identity and community here uh, in the West Coast through call of the society. And it was something that's not what it is today. Um, but I mean, as long as these systems are in place um, and we, we're allowing, uh, like, I, I, don't, I don't see a way out of this. I mean, if we're not, like there, there's people like to say that, well, we, we can't do a criminal background check on someone coming from India Fair enough, yeah. But like the police isn't the only way to access information. I mean, you can find out like from seven different families, if you have a potential coming from India, what that person is like, right? I mean, like we have our own systems in place informally is that you can find out about how legitimate a person is coming from there. Um, so like like safety measures are, I feel like are incredibly important um, and at the very least accountability, like getting people out, out Um, of these places is incredibly important. Um, And just understanding that because someone is saying Vaheguru, Vaheguru and carries a a certain amount of knowledge about a subject, it doesn't give them a hall pass or excuse them. It in fact makes what they're doing so much worse because they're not just, uh, I mean, they're not just committing like horrific harm to another human being, but they are also uh, taking the sanctity of Guru's Darbar and Gurbani away from that person. They're, so, they're now associating that with trauma. They're associating that with harm and violence. And the fact that we're letting people get away with it is not so, it's like, so they can teach so many more people because they have so much more uh, expertise. Um, but we're putting those same people at the same positions of risk. And uh, I have lots to say about this. Um, uh, but i'll I'll leave it there.
3: Thank you
0: so much uh Harlingor, same big question. So how is the concept of pugby misappropriated to protect those who produce violence in some good?
3: yeah, um I think Singh covered most of it i think I'll just share maybe two things that I'm thinking about um I mean one, I think I'll just share um if it's helpful for anyone that the the sort of um, Gurbani reference I hear most often with this conversation is, um, and I think exactly what Benitzing was talking about is right? So from a nun's side, this idea of, again, like we can't be fooled by um, sort of what a person might be displaying. Um, And at the end of the day, the only person who can really judge what's, um, you know, what their true intentions are um, is Guru side. So, and again, just, for myself also trying to reflect on like, okay, what does that actually mean in terms of more tangibly, you know, protecting people who are more vulnerable within the community and actually putting things into practice, um, I'm actually starting to think about now something, um, an intention that my um, mom very much raised us with that um, I'm very thankful for. And she always was very adamant that, um, you, you know, she would very much always share with us that every sick should be, be able to be a of right? and in that saying where every six should be able to be a gunthi, right sort of using more um, neutral terminology that as i've been reflecting on this in recent weeks or months i'm also questioning how much of this is because of the way we have set up our community to really rely on particular people and because of that very strong reliance we can't have honest conversations about holding that person accountable because what does that mean if that person the person that we have chosen the person that we've now put up on this pedestal is our um, ether or our connection point to Guru Sahib is actually not as connected as we thought, right? Or is actually not as true of an embodiment as we thought. And I think um, that's sort of been my reflection lately of like, why is it so hard for us to have these conversations around accountability? Why does it still, even in my generation, continue to devolve into this sort of like not believing the survivor um, not really, um, yes, it, it's, we're still very much stuck in this thing that, um, a lot of folks thought was more of an older generation thing of, um, not being willing to know that these stories are true. And I'm continuing to see that in our generation. And so I think for me, it's really this issue of, um, we've become too reliant on people instead of gurusai, right? And if we're all able to build that connection, that direct connection to side, if we're all able to invest in our Gurdwari, invest in, in building our own relationship, then we can also equally hold each other accountable because we can get closer to, um, again, what Buneet Singh mentioned at the beginning, understanding that no one is higher, no one is lower, right? It's not It's not about all of us. I think this conversation also comes up in discussing um, feminism, right? It's not that like women need to be treated like better than men. It's that all of us are on an equal plate, right? We're just fighting for that idea of equity and what we need to do to get to that point of everyone being um in that in that experience of equal god so i think in terms of tangibles that's something i'm thinking about of how do we get rid of this very um non gunmuth ideology of of putting one person on a pedestal and saying okay tika whatever this person said this is our by sub um whatever this person says is now um my understanding of Sikhi and whatever they say is true, right? We're not, we're not no longer at a point of saying Guru Sahib is true. We're saying whatever my have said um, is my true understanding of Sikhi. So I think that's something that we really need to very urgently deconstruct in our mentality that I think is both tied into these issues of sexual violence within the community is tied into even things like Gurdwara politics, right? It's this idea that we are, trusting one particular person to, um, make the decisions of the community. Um, and yeah, we, when we have processes of like sabbat kalsa and other more sovereign measures, why are we really doing that? So.
0: That's phenomenal. Yeah. An abusive power comes from having power to abuse. And if we restore that power to the Sangat where gurus have meant for it to be, then we don't need to have like single points of access that can gatekeep good morning. Thank you so much for that. Okay, so I'm gonna switch over to the QA and we have a couple of questions, and um, I can also see that there's a great conversation happening in the chat. So if you can reframe those um, in the form of a question, please put some of them over there. So the first question as we better articulate our own narrative, in ways that speak to our next generation of six, how do we insert these perspectives into the mainstream narrative or larger national and international issues like climate or social justice? And that's Kulvir Singh from Brampton. Um, so I don't know which one of you wants to take this. And I think you can see the question written out too if you need some time to think about it.
1: I think one thing that we we often do is we we silo our spaces of conversation um, into like traditional tarmuk and then um, I don't I don't know scholarly talmud or whatever you want to call it um, and so like there there's there's lots of siloing um, in in our community I think a uh, a big uh, a big thing that could help with this is um, is understanding like that we have the our, our greatest points of access to the community are our uh, traditional spaces are our gurdwara stages um now yes there's a monopoly on gurdwara stages by certain people um and demographics right uh and that becomes very problematic and very tough um but i think, think that um i mean like usually uh, a young kathavachik english-speaking kathavachik born Gotha logic usually can be afforded time on stage um, and like to do katha. and I think an important thing that we start need to start doing um, and six have been doing for for centuries uh, or for decades at least I can't speak to centuries um, is that is putting our commentary on contemporary social issues and issues of justice now social justice now into our traditional discourses um, if you go to, uh, I was in I was in Patna Sahib earlier this year and I was listening to Suraj Prakash Katha in the evening by um, and Anjit Singh. And uh, he was talking about, that, like during Suraj Prakash Katha, he's relating things back to safety during coronavirus and I was, this was in March. Um, right before like things got locked down, it was very important. So why are we not talking about, wh- why, why are we sweeping under the rug or siloing conversations around climate, social justice, et cetera, when our, with, like traditional texts speak to it uh, at least a little bit. And so we have those opportunities. And I think that um, we do have young people who are very interested in, in um, upholding these traditions as well, which I think is fantastic. Um, one, of, one of my f- good friends, uh, Gurkirat Singh, was the first time I heard a Katha Vajik on stage um, doing Katha in English and Punjabi, uh, talk about uh, indigenous issues back in 2015, I believe it was 2016, maybe 17. And that was amazing, right? Like everyone's connecting to that because it's uh, because it's because it's what they're there to absorb. Um and this commentary from the Kathaw is something is something that they're looking for in their lives. So I think we need to um, stop siloing our spaces so much. Um, because the answer isn't to make really bad kids shows on YouTube. I mean, I feel like that's what that's that's what we think is like YouTube but you have the video right? But like it's it's someone who really doesn't care about making engaging content or like even watches YouTube videos themselves. It's like we have these avenues that go right into the arteries of our communities. So let's access those. From me, anyway.
3: That's phenomenal.
0: Yes. I think, do you want to add anything to that question?
3: I think I'll just really quickly again yeah. emphasize what I shared before. Also, sorry, there's like a very intense thunderstorm starting here, so <laughs> there's background noise. Um, but. Um, I think is, I think we need to remind ourselves that, you know, some, something that I hear often, you know, um, when we're sort of struggling of how do we do a modern day application of Sikhi is that there's no precedent for this, or um, for example, yeah, any of, any of these issues that were listed in the question, like, oh, Guru Sahib didn't address that specifically, which I, get, I think, as Bonit Singh said, is not necessarily the case, but I think that we need to make a little more effort and realize that okay maybe if that specific issue we don't feel like is exactly addressed in Gurbani, what is the framework that is being provided to us that we can use to address that issue? So this might be oversimplifying, but I really think that it is this easy that if we are able to embody the idea of Ikhon God in everything that we do, that really leaves no space for inequality for oppression of any kind, right? Like how do you how can you see those things as happening in the same space? And so. I think for us as six, you know, these examples that Paneeth gave of, of what, what sort of issues do we see in the world today and how do we apply a good framework to that? And also while doing that, making sure that we're not letting the world dictate our understanding of good month. So I think it has to be a very important process first of understanding good body, Make, building a relationship with Gurusai for ourselves, doing our best to um, start moving away from English translations that are very colonial and patriarchal and all of those things. And through that, as we build that relationship, as we understand Gurbani, as we read Sikh history and start to get even these contemporary examples as Panit Singh brought up, we will build, We will be able to better build a Gurmath framework that we can then use to approach every single issue. Because, yeah, we have, we have coronavirus now, we have climate change now, 100 years from now, six are going to be dealing with different things, right? So six, as six, we have to be more innovative and less lazy. Um, and I say that even to myself, that I think we just, we really have to put in the effort to realize Guru saab gave us all the answers. Um, and it's, it's quite simple. It's just that we're not willing to put in the effort to actually apply that in an authentic way.
0: Um, for Harleen we had uh, from Jisvier Basi from LA. When you're referring to Guru saab who are you referring to?
3: I mean, I think just going off of what I said just now, um, I think that, you know, we have the, obviously, as six, we have the embodiment of Guru Sahib in Guru Granth Sahib Ji, and that Gurbani is first and foremost um, what we should be building a relationship with. Gurbani, I think, is the the truest form of Guru Sahib's embodiment and legacy that we should be using as our guide. Um, and then I think we also have the benefit of of Sikh history of Sakhis. To really give us those contextual examples that we need. Um, so again, you know, going back to the previous question, if we feel like we don't fully understand the application of a particular idea, maybe thinking about the sakhi or the particular anecdote around that shabbat um, to to give us more context in in terms of building that relationship with Ghusad. But I think the simplest answer is just good Thank you. Okay, from Harmincor.
0: How do we ensure we don't fall into the trap of thinking that young people are the only and perfect answer? I've heard superb gatha in Punjabi, but many youth now don't get it. Many leaders in our generation are perpetuating, but also many leaders in our own generation are perpetuating sexism, racism, et cetera. How can we make sure our community standards are high when it comes to identifying leaders?
1: I love this question, uh, also because I love young people. Uh, and I don't think that um, that young people are the only perfect answer. I don't think there ever is an only perfect answer. I think there's only <laughs> awareness and discomfort. So um, the reason that I love young people is because uh, I spent a while. I mean, I I work a lot in education, so I spend a lot of time with them. Uh, but I mean, through like my lots of exposure to young people um, and my my you know profound amount of exposure to. Uh, our institutions and uh, our power structures in the Sikh community i can I can definitively say one is much more enjoyable to work with than the other. <laughs> um, and I'll let you guess which one that is. Um, now uh, seriously I'm a Gen Z Twitter, I'm all about that. so um, uh, but there's superb Kaham Punjabi and youth uh, sorry, and you don't know it. Okay, so this is a I think this for myself this is a consequence of the fact that we silo our conversations um I did talk in the last answer about um about bringing our conversations here into traditional spaces, and that's important. I also feel like it's important to uh, to get people who uh have more have different value systems or mindsets um or opinions um even like uncomfortable ones like like really uncomfortable ones um into these spaces and to have these discussions right it has to be a it has to be a two-way two-way avenue like that that's not a that's not a directive for everyone to open up every space to every person all the time of course um because there's there are spaces that are dedicated for certain conversations um to maintain the integrity and safety of those spaces um but how can we make sure our community standards are high when it comes to identifying leaders? I think Harleen Kaur did a, does an amazing job of reiterating this over and over again, which is why I insist she's a gangster. Um, and that is that, uh, w- why are we so dependent on uh, the leadership of individuals, right? Uh, why are we, uh, when our guru is has put so much into panth, uh, when elevated us into panth, yes, there will naturally be leadership that emerges, uh, but if, like, if I, if I'm determined to spend the rest of my life looking for and cultivating and creating the Singh, I'm gonna have a really hard time. You know what I'm saying? Because I have perspectives on an individual person that are individual and flawed perspectives, um, and I'm trying to then force that upon somebody else. I think as a as a collective, we can raise raise our consciousness, attach it to Guru Sahib, um, and use Guru Sahib as our guiding light, as as our everything, and. Uh, um, I, I, th- I think that's really the only way forward. But uh, yeah, I love Gen Z. I think that's the one thing to take away from that answer.
3: <laughs>
0: Agreed. Um, okay, and so next question from Gurdjieff Gore. This is a little bit leaning more to the Bhakti side. Harleen Gore, you mentioned about having the experience of God, and I love the way you keep referring back to that. Do you feel this concept is discussed enough or understand at least at a rudimentary level in six circles To elaborate, what would you say about the Sikh understanding, practice, conversation regarding the internal experience of Bhakti being what Guru Sahib teaches relative to the external doing of Bhani Bhakti? Would love to hear from you both.
3: I mean, that's that's really the question, right? Like, I think that's that's our whole journey of Sikhs. Um, So. I will um, respond to this the best I can, given where I am in my sick journey. But I think that right, there's a lot of parts here. So I think that in terms of the rudimentary level component, I, I think what you're getting at, God, is maybe that um, I think like most of Sikhi, we really undersell it. And I think we don't understand how um, the reason to me, I think Bonnie is so beautiful is because it is so simple and complex at the same time. So I think the concepts that Guru Sahib is giving us are simple in the, in the sense that they are easy to understand theoretically, but putting them into practice, um, is so, so hard. And I think, um, I was actually thinking about this as Baneet Singh answered the question about, you know, sort of working with people of particular age groups in the month. And I actually was doing, um, a good Bonnie with my Sangath yesterday on, um, the Shabbat I, I pulled it up, but, um, the recording I've heard uses, um, as the main line by the gender sing Singapore. and we, we ended up having this conversation about, you know, when Guru Sahib is talking about the idea of young versus old, is it really about where we are in our life? Or is it perhaps this idea that, um, we can become young again and the process of that is more our mentality and that, the earlier we are in life, just naturally, and we even hear this from like social psychologists now, but like, you just have less worldly attachments, right? When you're born, because and even in Punjab, you know, we say, you know, kids are up the roof, right? So this idea that when you're born, you're sort of, you're closer to Waheguru because you just haven't had the time to really bring on those attachments. And I think that is the idolization of youth that happens a lot in movements that the younger you are, the less socialized you are into the systems of the world, and so I think, in terms of what that means for actually being what Guru Sahib teaches us, um, and sort of practicing and understanding Ikkonkar God, is the challenge of how do we, how do we not get too comfortable um, in our lives? I think this goes back to the diasporic conversation too that the reality is a lot of Sikhs have been able to find comfort relative to what they had prior to migration. And I think the danger of that comfort is it makes us, it makes us forget Vaigru. Honestly, like if you are feeling very comfortable and you don't feel like you have any challenges, um, there's so many like phrases and, and um, colloquial things that talk about this, but what is, it's very easy to forget Vaigru and forget the need for, connecting with Guru Sahib when you don't have those challenges. Um, and I think that's why it's so important for us as six to have a more global understanding of oppression, of inequality and all of those things, because we will realize that even if I'm as an individual am not struggling, someone else is, and that should impact me just as much as my own struggle, because to me, that's the practice of Ikkonkar. That's the embodiment of it is realizing that another person suffering Um, is just as important as my own or my family members or my friends. Um, And I think that's sort of like where the tie in to activism and really practicing um, Bhakti as Shakti comes from is sort of being rooted enough in our connection to Guru Saib and our understanding of um, connecting with Vaiguru through our worldly experience that we are able to drive all of our actions and interactions in the world through that.
1: Singh, do you want to add anything yeah um i mean i don't feel like i can add much to this there's one um there's one thing that comes to mind uh that is that uh someone did talk about uh recently that we we leave a lot of our discussions um at gomatha day camps for kids and then we and then we kind of just expect them to become six and move on with their lives um and so we infantilize a lot of our conversations um I mean, I love, I love Gurma's day camps. I go to usually a few a year because like, again, love the youth, love the youths. <laughs> um, but uh, I think that it's, uh, it's also really important that like these, like these vajars, they continue. Um, and like the, the questions that like, that Gurjeet has put forward, um, much beyond my scope, but uh, it, it leads me to uh, a conversation that I was once having with Gani Endrizi, Singh from Rahma, um, who has this way of speaking that disarms you as a listener and just as a as somebody that uh, is talking talking to them. Uh, and they, it was a group of us, and they asked us, they're like, Tusitarna? is doniato? Like, do you want to do you want to you know be carried across this world ocean? Do you want want to swim across? Basically, achieve mukti or salvation." And that's like four or five of us are sitting there, and everyone's like, Well, yeah, that's kind of you know why we're doing this. <laughs> and uh, they're they're like, Okay, okay, they're like, thika, thika. And they're like, this is the, the essentially the problem with what how we teach Sikhi. And it sounds so much better in Punjabi than it does in English. But they said, right? That my tarna So Bani And that's how we read Bani. Right? that we're just swimming across the barney that we're reading they're like and i was like oh my god that's amazing um uh it's such a beautiful way of putting it but i mean these are the conversations um that uh that uh, like are taught in this way i say that, that i value my i value my upbringing and learning um from like sampraday kustads because um this kind of conversation is embedded in those texts now like how someone relates to those texts is obviously going to be different for each person. Um, but for me it's a it's a really important thing because a lot of um a lot of this understanding is what is not communicated in circles and like everyday conversation or kind of like uh, just rudimentary, as you put it, uh, conversations on Sikhi. and I think uh, if we can like infuse that kind of understanding, and I'm not saying it's exclusively something that extending. I think that's where my connection comes from. But uh, if we can start, um, if we can start, uh, I mean, in our own practice, infusing it in our conversations, uh, that it would be it would be incredible. I I don't have solutions. I just I just have musings.
0: I got chills when you said that. That's so beautiful. Um, so uh, and I apologize because we're not going to get a chance to get to everyone's questions. And there were some really great questions in here. Um, but I do want to end with uh, just uh, your personal reflections at the end of all of this. I think after we listen to this webinar, we go back into the world. We're trying to practice what Guru Sahib has not only told us through Bani, but also shown us through lived examples in history, um, I think in my experience like the non sick messages we get always say pick a side, uh, be peaceful, be mindful, uh, protest but only nicely, um, or you know like abolish and anarchy and like and sometimes though like and in Sikhi those things are not mutually exclusive and they're not um, one or the other and our personal and our political are not two separate things and they're very blurred And it's really cool and it's such a huge privilege to be able to walk on a path where the insistence is that those things become blurred. Um, So my last reflection question to both of you is in your daily practice and in your life, how do you live the balance and the integration of the strength that comes from Shakti and the mindfulness and the intention that comes from Bhakti and putting those two together. What does that mean for you as you walk away from this today and you continue to live your life on this path? Harleen Kaur.
3: Um, I I really appreciated you ending with this question just because I think um, for me it even made me start thinking about I think the first time I heard this phrase was um, from bell hooks um, and sort of this idea of you know the personal being political and then and so that that has sort of always driven my relationship to activism. But I, as I started to think about this more from, what would Sikhi say about this? Um, yeah, I, I just started thinking. I was like, okay, what is personal without ego? What is personal without me? And I think in that sense, it would be more so an understanding of our individual journey of experiencing Vaheguru and connecting it such, connecting with such which happens through like accountability of our actions, I've got them, right? And then on the flip side, what is political in a world where our goal is to actually remain detached from the world. Um, and so I started thinking about that. And I was like, well, I think political, those are the systems that shape our actions and the attachments that we take on in this world. And so we need to have a deep understanding of that in order to challenge them. So I think that's, that's our political is actually understanding what is the world? What, what is political? And so I think for me, again, I guess go, going back to Kaur's point, like it really, for me, where I am in my journey right now, all comes back to ikon god, And I think that is a reflection of how hard it is to embody because to me, I think the greatest threat that oppression poses to Sikhi is that it denies Waiguru's creation the opportunity to connect with Waiguru. right? So we think about it, all of oppression is happening through worldly mech- mechanisms and, and material things, which is why we, it's so salient. But the way it's able to do that, as we talked about with like sick legacies of colonization is that it changes your psyche first. The The true danger of oppression is that it convinces a person, um, whether you're oppressed or oppressor, it either convinces you that you are inherently less than or inherently greater than. And both of those polarizations take you further away from Bihu. And so I think that, If you're still in a place, if I'm still in a place where I truly believe that I'm in any way different than the person next to me, whether it's someone who has greater privileges than me or less privileges than me, how can I truly experience Vaiguru if I'm still seeing myself as different in any way? So I think to me, when I start to rethink about this phrase from a Gurmudh perspective, it is, how do I root my personal in something that is not home-meh? Um, and how do I root my political in something that is to experience Vaigru during this lifetime? Um, and I think all of that comes back to this, like, symbiotic process of bhagdi and right, of just how do we practice both of these simultaneously, um, to really root ourselves on that journey to Vaigu? Yeah, beautiful.
0: Thank you. And Benit Singh, final reflection.
1: Um, yeah, so, um, it's a great place to end off on uh which is uh for myself i've been reflecting uh the last day or so on um ardas and uh because ardas i feel like is the this in, like the this incredible relationship between the personal and the political um and like the divine and the self um and uh there's so like when when we break it down, first we're acknowledging our gurus, then we're acknowledging our shaheeds and our community, then we're doing ardaas for our, our community and our plant, and then we're doing ardaas for ourselves, and our ardaas for ourselves ends with an ardaas for humanity, um, and I think uh, this idea of like of uh, the personal and political being dichotomous is um, is one of those like Western-imposed dichotomies that uh, I talked about earlier, um, because it's like, well, like this idea of politics at the dinner table, um, but like Maraj brought politics into the Darbar, right? Like you know, like uh, like screw your dinner table, like we're doing this in the Darbar, um, which is which is incredible to me. And again, like there's differences in opinion and that kind of thing, and there's a lot of discussion now about like yeah opinions are fine but when when your opinion becomes a question of my existence or the humanity of another person then then we're going to have a problem and i think this has always been at the crux of Sikh practice um of of our martial and and devotional ethos so um for me like i i reflect on ardas a lot and um i love i love hearing uh, ardas that isn't um, standardized, or you know, like sometimes like a, a stanik ardas, or like someone, because um, it changes from place to place based on geography, based on the politics of that area, based on the language of that area, which is all incredible to hear. Um, and the thing is, it, the thing that never changes about ardas is that is that structure, is that it goes from akal Purakh, guru saib and that will never change, but it'll change um as it affects the communities around us and so um that that's where that's where my reflection ends today i think is uh is kind of absorbing and living presently uh in those moments of ardas uh when we do them and like and then applying that lens towards Um, the way we live our life. Uh, And on this, the the one thing that I had planned to say, this kind of just all came came off the cuff, was um, Sangat itself, the idea of Sangat, not just Pant, but actually going to Sangat, carries the same kind of blur of personal and political. Sangat is the one that carries us across this world ocean. Uh, Sangat is the one that. uh, Sangat is our family. Sangat is our Raj. Sangat is everything for us in Gurbani. Um, so uh, like in this in this place where we live on that hyphen of bhakti and shakti and and miri and piri, and I think that that hyphen is where things like Ardas and Sangat and all of our, our radically dope concepts that we have uh, in our devotional practice come from.
0: Thank you so much. There have been so many moments of I, even though i've been muted when you guys are talking i'm i'm responding i'm like wow yeah um i reimagining how i think about Radas and i think uh how i think about power in sangat i think today's conversation is such a great example of leadership and sharing laterally and being immersed in our guru without any violence so it's possible and and your conversation is an example of what we're talking about that Bugby and that Shakti um thank you both for tuning in um in mid thunderstorm and from a different time zone and amidst all the technological difficulties um I know you both have a lot of projects a couple that I am I'm going to share name drop just because i enjoy consuming the stuff you produce. Helingor just published a peer-reviewed journal article, uh, which is a feat if you are in academia. And you can find it in the Jer- Amerasia Journal. And it's called Making Citizenship, Becoming Citizens. Um, Anthony's saying, amongst the many things he does, one of my favorite things is the work with the Nameless Collective and the podcast. Um, it, what is the name of the podcast? Is it Nameless Collective? Yeah. Okay, Uh, look it up, listen to it. I've learned so much from it and so entertaining and engaging and I learned so much from both of you. Thank you for sharing all of your gifts with all the Sangat that tuned in today and those who will be listening later when this is released as a podcast. And with that, I will turn it back to Minwinder. Beautiful,
2: amazing. Thank you to all of you. Sincerely, this conversation so great. I have so much to reflect on the for the rest of my Sunday. Thank you for joining in. Today's webinar will be ending now. vai Thank you for
3: listening to this webinar. You can look at upcoming webinars on our website at Sikri.org. And while you're there, please consider becoming a donor. It's with the help from our audiences that the team at SICKRI is able to continue exploring SICK knowledge and illuminating the voices in the community. Or consider becoming a supporter of the SickCast by clicking on support on our anchor.fm page. Or you can use the link in this episode's description. However, this podcast is free to all. So if you do like the show, tell some of your friends and family about us. You
0: are listening to SickCast by Sick Research Institute, illuminating every path.